Hello, Jim. This is Tracy with the Little Things First podcast. I'm trying on different radio voices. I love it. That's awesome. This is Jim Martin, uh, you know, my boring voice. <laughs> <laughs> boring as ever. Jim, All right. this is my high, smiling, little happy voice. <laughs> yeah, people will have to weigh in on which voice they yeah. like the best. Yeah. Okay, Jim. Now... I know that we have another phenomenal author. We sure do. I don't sure know do. how you become best friends with these people, by the way. Well, I wish you. I was best friends with them, but, you know, they're kind enough to give me 30 minutes of their time. But, um, you know, this is Douglas Fisher, Dr. Doug Fisher, and he has written an enormous amount of books and has been such a contributor to the field, and we are lucky to be able to talk to him today about... Uh, the work that he and his colleagues have done, especially around distance learning of late. Yeah. They've got books about, you know, distance learning for teachers, distance learning for leaders, distance yeah. learning for parents. So, and that, of course, that's on everybody's mind. And we certainly have had our share of distance learning going on, exactly. right, in the world. So, let's go ahead and give him a call and see what he is going to give us in the form of advice because all we've been doing is a lot of distance learning since March of 2020, right? I know, I know. On and on it goes. All right, let's give him a call and uh, see what he can, what insights he can share with us because it, it it's something on everybody's mind. Sure. Hello. Hi, Dr. Fisher. This is Jim Martin. Hi. Hello, how are you? I'm good, thanks. How about you? Good. I'm here with my colleague, Tracy Vandeventer. Hello, Dr. Fisher. It's so good to talk to you. Thank you for giving us some of your time today. Of course. Yep. We are curious about going deeper on distance learning, among Mm -hmm. other things. We, I also have questions about your assessing assessment capable visible learners, but you know, mostly we are starting with that distance learning because it's on everybody's mind, and they are so grateful to find your books out there. Hmm. You can kind of give us a rundown because we haven't been able to keep up. Actually, uh, <laughs> are you sleeping right now? Or? Oh, I sleep really well, <laughs> oh, but I'm not good. on airplanes anymore, so oh. I have all this time. Oh, that's what it is because it's like there's yeah. been an explosion of. Yeah. Writing going on, and we're thrilled yep. about it. Tell us Thank about you. your work, and especially with that focus on the distance learning. So, uh, in San Diego, we closed schools on March 13th. My sister is a critical care intensive care nurse, and we were having a conversation. And honestly, I thought it would be out for three weeks. Mm-hmm. We would clean the school, we would change the filters, all this stuff, and we'd be back. And I had a conversation with my sister over the weekend, and she said, "You're not going back." And I said, what do you mean? And she said, all the doctors that I'm talking to, you're not going back. And I said, well, how long? And she said, this year. And I mean, this school year? No, 2020. Wow. Well, turns out she's right. (laughs) And our school system has announced we're not returning at least until January, maybe later than that. So on March 20th, uh, Nancy and I contacted a group of teachers and we said, hey, we need to learn about distance learning together. 74 people joined us on this journey. Hmm. And we Zoomed and hung out and teamed together, and we started learning about distance learning, mostly because of our own work at our own school, That and we didn't really think about writing a book. We were just trying to support the teachers within our school and steal best ideas from other people. Uh, the folks that we worked with are in Australia, Hawaii, Alaska, California, and Texas, and they have 
willingly experimented, tried on, uh, you know, here's an idea, let's brainstorm how to make it happen. And so it's been really fun. So then we started saying, well, what's it going to take to really support teachers in this rapid transition to distance learning? So engagement and participation became a big issue. Uh, students, you know, not logging in, not having cameras on. How do we how do we know that they're learning from us? So that's that was the impetus to start the whole distance learning series. And then yeah. you've gone deeper. I mean, it's more than just the engagement. Then I, you know, from what I can see in the work you've been doing, you're getting into also like measuring if kids are learning and how do you know that they know and what are some of the effects of Hattie's research and and even more than that. So. Do you, do you want to kind of go a little deeper and give us sure. just more of that evolution, starting with sure. that engagement and participation? But I'm really curious about the the really the areas that were highlighted by this group you were working with. Sure. So we started talking about the value of teacher clarity. Now, we've been working on teacher clarity for five or six years. And in distance learning, if students don't know what they're learning, why they're learning it, and how they will know they learned it, they check out. And so the idea of clarity, I think, became even more critical. And so we started seeing teachers in synchronous and asynchronous lessons being very explicit yeah. about here's what we're going to learn. Here's the relevance in this. And then here's what success will look like. Over time, like in the last, I don't know, five or six weeks, I'm seeing teachers asking students to flip grid answers to those questions. Now, this didn't happen in April and May oh, in pandemic right. teaching. But kids are now, so students will have like, I'm a Tuesday, Thursday, I'm a Monday, Friday, and they actually record videos, short clips on Flipgrid. Here's what I learned today. Here's why I learned it. Here's how I know that I learned it. And the teachers are using those as exit slips to see how their instruction sticks mm -hmm. and where the misconceptions are. Mm -hmm. So now from clarity to assessment, it was really, really cool. So it really started around clarity. Then we kept saying, let's let's learn about engagement. And there was this really awesome uh, publication on engagement called The Continuum of Engagement that's in the playbook. And it ends up with the highest level being driving. If you're driving your own learning, meaning you set goals, uh, you learn to seek feedback from other people, you monitor your own progress, you self-assess. And the researchers called that driving your own learning. And so for us, we started saying, well, if that's the ultimate form of engagement, that's where we need to go deeper. How can we get students to drive their own learning? What would be the mind frames we would have to develop? And to my thinking now, those mind frames transcend the format of school, whether it's distance, blended, hybrid, high flex, simultaneous, remote, online, or physical. We want to build some habits with our students. This is the time to experiment with it. So we started saying, what would be the deeper? <clears throat> so we came up with these bigger categories. We think, for example, students should know where they are in their learning journey. There's nothing wrong with saying, here's where I am right now. It's not a source of embarrassment or whatever. So teachers are having conferences. Teachers are giving students self-assessment tools so they know where they are today. The second part is to know where you're going so that students see, ah, here's where I am now, but here's where I want to be. And I'm willing to accept that challenge. Then students need to be provided tools, all kinds of learning tools, and then given opportunities to select tools that will work for them. It's in part student ownership. It's students saying, this graphic organizer is going to work for me. 
I don't like graphic organizers. I want to do an outline and letting them make some informed choices about how to move their own learning forward. Wow. So how do you feel the shift has been taking place in regards to teachers and maybe getting more into that standards-based work? Or do you see any shift like that happening? I think there's a lot of teachers who are demoralized and frustrated. Um, you know, students don't turn their cameras on. Some kids don't show up. They don't do any work. So that's become the narrative. Mm-hmm. And it's very dangerous. It's a very dangerous narrative because if we start attributing that to our own efforts, then our agency and efficacy decline. Sure. We need to start noticing the little wins and saying three students turned on cameras today that hadn't in a week. Awesome. Four students submitted their drafts early before they were due. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah, And I know I, I'm not in denial of the realities and the challenges, but if we only focus on that part of it, we forget that there are students who are trying hard. There are families who are making sacrifices for their kids to learn. There are heroic efforts going on to ensure that learning doesn't suffer. And I want to recognize that we have to have some outreach efforts, communicating with students and families, getting them back in the learning environment. I think one of our major roles right now is to repair students' relationships with learning. That's mm-hmm. our job right now. And, and, and we need to work on that. But we, but we need to attribute some of the successes to our efforts so we can rebuild our efficacy, our belief that our efforts are resulting in good things. Mm-hmm. And if we only focus on all the negatives, the five kids who didn't show up, the 10 kids who didn't turn anything in, and we say this is a failure, this is an epic fail, then we become demoralized. And then motivation starts to suffer. And then burnout sets in, and then eventually turnover. Yeah. So I'm trying really hard to avoid that. I want to build teachers up. You're doing what you can with what you have in a world pandemic to make sure kids are still learning. Mm-hmm. And I know someday, someday those kids are going to come back And they're going to look you in the eye, teacher, and they're going to say, do you remember me? Mm -hmm. Do you remember me? You were my teacher in COVID-19 and you didn't give up on me. Mm -hmm. I am who I am today because you did this for me. And that's what we have to hold on to. That at some point, kids will understand the efforts we went to and they will appreciate it because we did not let their learning suffer. And I know it's hard right now. And I know the narrative is very negative, but we have to focus on some successes as well. I, I am really, I'm moved by that conversation because I think it is so easy for us to just look at all the ways it's not working. Yes. And it is heavy, right? It's very yes. heavy to to see that it's not the same and here's how it's worse. And, right. you know, reframing that uh, so that we are recognizing how this in some ways has been the best thing. Maybe not in the best thing, you know, as far as like the world and people, you know, of course, mm-hmm. who have been sick. But but in general, what I love is we've been forced to evaluate the work yes. and to improve on it. And yes. that might be the best thing because otherwise we kind of were just going along in our 
in our routines and not being as reflective maybe as we could have been uh, mm-hmm. on that teacher clarity, on the assessment. So I, I really love that. I, I was really affected by reading the book, The Progress Principle, mm-hmm. Teresa Amabile. And I, uh, I just feel that we need to, as educators, recognize the progress that we've made uh, yes. through this journey. So thank you, because I think that there's a lot of power, a lot of power there. Here's a question for you. We focus on the little things that make a big difference, and, mm-hmm. and mostly our listeners are uh, educational leaders. And I'm curious what you feel would be some of the ways educational leaders can help their teachers get to that place. Um, have you been talking about that in your group or in your work with oh, the yes. 74? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. <laughs> um, one of the things, I mean, for, I'll go back to teacher agency and teacher efficacy. Leaders, please help your teachers recognize their successes and attribute those successes to their efforts. Our, right now, we have got to rebuild teachers' sense of efficacy and their sense of agency. And we can acknowledge the challenges. We can let people talk through the challenges. And then we need to move to some things that are working. That's a big part of it. And giving them little tiny tips to change the dynamics of their online learning are so powerful. So here's an example. When teachers call, you know, they say to students, would anyone like to share? Would anybody like to comment on this? And the student says, me. And then the teacher says, who's talking? who's me? And the student says, me. And you're looking for the yellow square that lights up and things like that. Mm -hmm. Very simple tweak on that. When the student's ready to talk, they say the teacher's name and then their name. Mr. Fisher, Jessica. Mr. Fisher, Brian. Mm -hmm. Mr. Fisher, Ollie. And yeah, yeah, Ollie, go. It speeds up. It makes it easy. It makes me feel like I'm not stumbling across. Those little tiny things help in big ways to make me feel like I'm back to being the teacher. Mm -hmm. I think we have to stop saying we're all first year teachers. Mm -hmm. I think that is such the wrong narrative to have Mm -hmm. right now. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. leaders should be interrupting this. We are not first year teachers. We did not forget how to teach. Right. What we need is access to our learners. That's what we need. And yes, we might be learning some new technology tools, but if we have access to our learners, all of our habits, all of our strategies, all of our routines can translate through that computer. Hmm. So um, let's say that we can disrupt some of the negativity and the, the um, ero- erosion of efficacy that's going on right now. And, um, you know, how, how do you see us coming out better because of our time with virtual learning? Like, do you see, what do you see as the legacy of virtual learning and the work that you've done around distance learning uh, with your books? So one, um, kind of on the, I'll say a little bit more negative side, we've been telling ourselves as educators for years that we have built intrinsic motivation with our students and the pandemic showed us not true. <laughs> it is not true. And we need to really think through that as a profession. What do we mean by intrinsic motivation? How do we develop intrinsic motivation, whether you're five or 15? Mm-hmm. And the, like the Jenkins curve that says, you know, 97% of kids love school, engage in school, find it very relevant when they're five. And it never goes better than that. It just declines all the way through. So we've known about this. We just haven't done anything about it. Yeah. So I think this whole idea of intrinsic motivation for learning, 
that we thought we told ourselves we had, the pandemic highlighted, it's not true. And that needs to be a huge focus as we return to school in whatever format school will look like in the future. <clears throat> the other thing I, I personally, I think we've learned all kinds of new assessment techniques that I hope don't go away. The lock and key, so to speak, you know, the, <clears throat> the very secure test with a scantron and things like that. <laughs> If you that see I'm it, supervising you, right? Mm. All the kids just Google everything or their parents help it. So we've learned some really cool new assessment tools. Um, getting kids to teach back the content is powerful, whether they're teaching their peers or their family or the teacher or the class. When they have to teach back things, it's so cool. It's really an interesting model of assessment. When students are given choices of things, for example, I'm seeing a whole bunch of what's called a no-show, K-N-O-W, no-show charts. So here's the success criteria. List all the things you now know. List all the ways you can show what you know. It's a very different model of assessment of me telling you how you will demonstrate what you've learned. Show me all the things you now know. Show me all the ways you can show what you know. And then we'll negotiate. How can you demonstrate what you've learned? I think it's so powerful. It's so cool. I'm also seeing a, a, a significant resurgence in universal response. And that was a way part of my teaching years ago. So dry erase boards, hand signals, all of these tools that we had that we kind of neglected despite decades of research that they reduce disruptive behavior and they increase participation and learning. We're seeing a whole resurgence of universal response opportunities from students. Mm-hmm. And I wasn't seeing a lot of this. I was seeing a lot more individual calling on in physical school for the last few years, rather than these universal responses that allow the teacher to inclusively check understanding. <clears throat> the, my big learning, I didn't know this word before. Some of your listeners might know this, is ipsative assessment. I think it's a very cool idea. So Nancy and I were reading about assessment and we ran across this term ipsative. And um, we were talking with John Hattie about it and he said that he almost wrote his original dissertation proposal was on ipsative assessment. <laughs> and so it's so cool. And so the idea here is you take an assessment, you analyze it, you figure out what you still need to learn, and you take it again. And you continue this process in a recursive way. And so we're seeing teachers do exactly this in the pandemic, giving students assessments, letting them self-assess, letting them figure out where do I need to learn things? Where do I need to practice things? What do I need to study? And I'll take it again. And I'll take it again because the goal is to reach competence or proficiency. The goal is not to catch you because on October 10th, you didn't master this because I gave you the assignment exactly this day. But it's learning from your performance on the assessment itself. And I think that's such a cool uh, opportunity presented by the pandemic because we have time now kids Mm -hmm. can take the assessments five more times because we don't have them 50 minutes in a class or six hours in a day we have more time Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and what if that becomes the norm of we establish what it looks like to reach proficiency and students have opportunities to self-assess reassess identify their learning gaps seek out feedback continue learning until they have reached proficiency I really like this this idea of assessment. And then I think the big thing that we're seeing now is a huge resurgence in self-assessment, which mm-hmm. should have always been yeah. 
students should own their assessments. Students should know how to assess their own performance. But by and large, teachers were the arbiters of whether or not kids learned things. I did. Mm-hmm. I was the judge. Yeah. And so if we can ever really, really develop self-assessment where the teacher's role is to validate and challenge what the student self-assesses, we turn the table in a considerable way. Where students are provided tools, they self-assess. We look at it and we say, I agree with you here. I want to challenge you here. I completely agree. This is what you've, we're an area that you have. This is a glow for you. It's amazing. Here's an area that you've identified to still grow in. I agree with you. How can we help you grow in that area? I think if we could really embrace self-assessment and teach students to assess their own performance and have teachers be the monitors of that, we could really change the whole assessment mindset. I love that. And the idea of emphasizing that competence, right, and the mastery and mm-hmm. and going back to this idea that, you know, take the test again, take it yeah. again. Well, no, here, here, go for it again. Because I, I think pre-COVID, right, pre-home learning, we were finding ourselves in a place where as leaders, hearing teachers say, well, you know, I've got to prepare them for the next level. I have to teach them to be responsible. I have to teach them, you know, that they can't just have hundreds of chances to do it. Mm, Kind of, we do have hundreds of chances, you know, you can Mm -hmm. take the driver's test as many times as you want. (laughs) May not be as positive. I said this. (laughs) You're in. I was challenged on this the other day and I said to the person who was interviewing me, what do you call someone who passes the bar on the fifth attempt? A lawyer. A lawyer. <laughs> right? Our society is built on this. Just like you said, the driver's test. Yep. You have the same license I have if it took you five times. Same license. Right. Yeah. Because there's a bar that we say, this is what you have to accomplish. <clears throat> it's not based on time. So much of school is based, if you didn't do it by November 15th, yeah. it's too late. Because you're that you're cut, yeah. um, and there are some students, especially as they get older and more, more adolescents, if it's all point-based systems, if they don't do well in the first couple months, there aren't enough points left, right, for them to pass the course, right. Even if they all of a sudden click and get it, they're punished for the past. There's no way to recover, and I think we need restorative grading. We need to figure out ways that when students demonstrate that they have learned stuff, their grades reflect that. Mm -hmm. And I understand there's all this thing about time and responsibility. I don't think anybody learned to be more responsible because they didn't finish something on a specific day and got enough for it. Right. I think they learned to be responsible because of the conversations we have with them. Yeah. Yep. So Dr. Fisher, what can, um, I know you, you've contributed to a book um, on parents and distance learning. Mm-hmm. Um, I know that's been a frustration for some families, how to navigate the whole distance learning situation. Yes. What what thoughts have you, I mean, it's a whole book, obviously, but if anything stands out as far as helping our families better navigate this world, uh, what would you say? Well, I think... First, I would say to families, allow your kid to struggle. Don't tell them the answers. Yeah. Don't do the work for them. We are seeing such well-intended overhelping with families, and it's going to cause long-term learned helplessness. And I promise it's going to be way harder to do 
undo learned helplessness than address any loss of learning that occurs. Learned helplessness is really, really difficult to address. And well-intended, well-meaning families are rescuing kids, by and large, because they're not used to seeing their own child struggle. Educators are. We're used to it. It's normal for us. We scaffold, we prompt, we cue, we check for understanding, we reteach. It doesn't freak us out when kids struggle. Parents mm. aren't used to that. Yeah. And so we have to help parents with that message. And then, depending on how many minutes you have, here's some things that are high value. Get your kid to read. Mm-hmm. It's very high value. High correlation between overall achievement and how many minutes a day you read. So get your kids to read. Get your kids to talk. Using academic language is really powerful. So we go through some ideas of if you have time, here would be the value of this. Um, but I think right now that my main message for families is I believe the education system has learned so quickly and instruction mm-hmm. is becoming very good. What we struggle with is socialization, yeah. friendships, conflict resolution, those kinds of things. So families, if you could let us take on the academics, if you could get your child to do the practice work that we ask for, because practice makes the learning permanent, not perfect. And if you could work on socialization and friendships and helping your kid resolve conflicts, we'll be better together and we'll get through this. Mm, Powerful. I. I have some questions in regards to supporting those teachers working with our youngest learners. Mm-hmm. And really, I think that uh, they struggle in trying to make that learning chunk bite size and you know palatable for those little guys. Mm-hmm. Tell, tell us more about strategies that can help those who are working with our, our youngest kids. And I think <clears throat> I'll just say, I'll start with this. Every age group has its challenges. Sure. Right. Learning calculus from a distance, <clears throat> when and the minute you get frustrated, you log out, has its own challenges. Sure. But for the youngest kids, I see a lot of what I used to see in classrooms now that people have comfort. I see kids riding on dry erase boards. I watched a lesson the other day, phonics lesson, and they were doing consonant-vowel consonant. Every kid had camera on, every kid with a marker, every kid holding it up, teacher checking, teacher raising. <clears throat> There's like 35 minutes. And they were all through this lesson on all these words. It was amazing. Then the teacher read a book and the kids were spotting the words that they had, consonant about consonant words, mm. as she was doing her read aloud. Mm-hmm. This is an hour and 30 minutes. They're still there. Mm-hmm. There's this worry about screen time. And there used to be this you know, caution about screen time. So yes. I want to be careful about that. The research on screen time pre-COVID for limiting for children was based on recreational screen time, specifically videos and games. We actually don't know that much about educational screen time. And so I wanna be careful around when we say no more screen time for kids. If they're looking down at their dry erase boards and they're making consonant vowel consonants and they're holding it up to their teacher and their teacher's giving them feedback and saying, great job, Ibrahim, great job, Jessica. And they're coming back. Here's your next word. Mm-hmm. I just think about, is, is that a bad thing? I mean, these kids are actually learning this. Now take those, I watched that, take the word mat and put it in a sentence on your dry erase board. And let me see how you use the word mat. And they were doing it there. And of course there was transitional spelling and all the things that she was noticing of what I need to go next in my yeah. class. Yeah. But an hour and a half. Then they had a recess break. There was music playing. There was a little movement video that they could wiggle and move and stuff. 
And then she was back on, and they went into math, and she introduced the idea of math. If you add three brown dogs and two black dogs, how many dogs do you have? Show me with the picture. Show me with your numbers. And it was just, you know, just it's natural. It's working. Um, and so I think, you know, we have to negotiate the role of families. Did you, you know, can you get your five-year-old logged in or your six-year-old logged in? Do you have the supplies ready? Mm-hmm. Do the kids have the things they need? Uh, but once the lesson starts to flow, I'm seeing really good lessons. I'm seeing really, really good lessons. I watched a transitional kindergarten teacher that should be on TV. She's a star. <laughs> she has her, she teaches from her classroom. The kids are at home. She moves around the room. She has a device that allows her camera to follow with her as she moves around the room. Nice. It's, it was magical to watch. And all their little faces are in, and she can see them all. And she's talking to them, and they did their morning meeting, and they did their calendar, and they did their weather. And they had to go to a window and look outside and see what the weather is and come back. It, it was, you know, I, do I want kids to come back physically to school? Absolutely. But there are some really good lessons happening. There are some really good things happening for kids. Is there a place where teachers could actually see some online lessons? And, you know, like there's superstars. <clears throat> yeah. Recorded lessons out there of live teaching. I just was wondering about, you know, online. We, we link a bunch of videos in the playbook and we okay. keep adding more to our YouTube channel. So um, I just loaded about six more videos on YouTube. It's Fisher and Fry, all one word. <clears throat> I think I just added six more last week on YouTube. Wonderful. Great. I have a question then, uh, and this is usually how we end our um, our time with our guests. And it's really thinking back and being reflective about us and wondering if you had the opportunity to jump into a time machine and go back and talk to your younger self as you were just mm-hmm. getting into education, what advice would you give your younger self? Mm-hmm. I, I still think... You know, I've, I never regretted being a teacher. I love being a teacher. Um, and I think that, you know, don't, you know, I strayed a little bit like, maybe I want to do this, maybe I want to do this. You, I've never regretted being a teacher. But <clears throat> I think uh, if I could give one piece of advice back then, stop grading and stop spending so much time hmm. writing on summative stuff. It doesn't matter. Spend more time as they're actually working and learning. And don't take all those papers home at the summative time and write all over them because your kids are just going to throw them away. They're not learning from that. <laughs> yeah, littering the playground as they, you know, That's right. on their way home. Making With more work the for the, cust- the custodian. And I said, oh, I spent hours and it would be like a week and a half before yeah. I'd have their papers back. They're in the trash. They're in the recycle bin. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I wasted so much time and I really wish I would have invested that amount of time in more formative evaluation. Sure. Sprinkled all along the way, helping, mm-hmm. helping kids sort of be reflective on what's yep. maybe their next step. Excellent. That's great advice. Thank you. Well, we so appreciate your time. Oh, and thank you. Just visiting with us. And so we want everyone to know to get out there, check out your playbook. 
Uh, we didn't really get into the uh, developing assessment capable and visible learners. I mean, they, there's a lot of carryover. You have a lot of the work from here that you've pulled into your yeah. playbooks also. Um, yep. And it sounds like they've got the YouTube video, Fisher and Fry, and um, other resources. Uh, too many to number here. If I go on the <laughs> on Google, your your oh. stuff just takes over two pages. Oh. Worth, so. <laughs> right. Amazing thank work, you. Dr. Fisher. We really oh, appreciate thank you all much. your contributions. So. Have a thank great rest much. of your day. You too. Bye. Bye-bye. Take care.